Well, just before we come to our uh, subject for today, uh, got another blue slip in the uh, wooden box at the back last week, asking a question uh, about what we were looking at last week in Hebrews. Um, no need to turn to it. I'll read uh, you the passage and uh, talk to you about the question. Uh, so it's to do with the relationship between verses 9 and 10 last week. This is what it said in, in Hebrews 2. But we see him who for a little while was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And the question was how those two verses fit together, because one of them says that Jesus tastes death for everybody, and the other verse then says... Uh, that uh, Jesus di- uh, is there sent for many sons, not all sons. Uh, so the question was, how do those two uh, fit together? So just a brief answer to that before we uh, dig in. The first thing I'd want to say uh, is that if you imagine uh, a ship is sinking and uh, everybody on board uh, dies and someone says, uh, "Yeah, how, how, who died? And they say, everybody died. Well, it's not absolutely everybody, is it? It's actually, in context, it means the people who were on the ship uh, so everybody doesn't always mean absolutely everybody in the whole wide world. And often in the Bible, the phrase is used for everybody without distinction rather than everybody without exception. So in other words, it's every type of people, everybody whom God calls all sorts of different people. Uh, so Jews, Gentiles, men, women, everybody, not in the sense of every single person. So the way those two verses fit together is when he says de- death for everybody, he means all of God's people, the many sons that he'll bring to glory uh, in the next verse. So that's how those two uh, fit together. If you've still got questions on that, feel free to write a follow-up question uh, on a blue slip and put it in the uh, wooden box at the back. C.H. Spurgeon, who was a 19th century Baptist preacher, wrote this to his students. Throw away the servility of imitation, he said it much better than me, (laughs) and rise to the manliness of originality. We're starting a series this morning on distinctives, and uh, what we're looking at really is what makes us distinctive as a church. Now, we're not going to be looking at the the surface of things like where we meet, what we wear, those sorts of things. We're looking really uh, about the doctrines, the beliefs that we have that make Bethel Bethel, uh, or what we want to make Bethel Bethel. And Mike and I have come up with eight of them. Uh, These are the ones that we're going to be looking at uh, over the next uh, few weeks. And these are things uh, that make us different from the church down the road or the church across the town or the church somewhere else. We've not got them from a textbook. Uh, We've gone with Spurgeon. We're going with the manliness uh, of originality. Uh, And this is who we are and this is what we want to be uh, in the future. And we call these our doctrinal uh, distinctives. Now I should say for those of you who haven't been at the members' meetings, um, this is not instead of, but on top of our statement of faith, which is quite rightly generic in the sense that it covers pretty much all Christians. So these aren't things that it's essential to believe to be a Christian. These are what you might call disputable matters. Uh, and they are disputable matters. So for example, what we're going to say today, well, John Wesley uh, would not agree with what we're going to say this morning, but we do agree that John Wesley was a Christian. Uh, and actually, some of the ones that we're going to talk about will be against the tide uh, of most of Christianity through history, uh, but we'll come to that when we when we get there. But these are issues that it pays for us to, to have a uh, to know where our church stands on these things. This is about defining who we are, uh, so that we know, and also letting people who want to join us know where we're going, what to expect. 
So we're saying you don't have to agree with them to become a member of Bethel, uh, but to recognise that this is what the church believes and where it wants to go. Now these are draft ones. Uh, These are what we've put together. uh, And we want to decide on this with the rest of the church. Uh, So that's partly why I'm going to preach through them week by week, uh, give you a chance to respond uh, with questions on blue slips, and we'll we'll look at questions uh, to do that. We've already had some feedback and some suggestions of better wording of different things. And I've put a copy on the back table uh, of what we've got, a sort of short explanation of each uh, one. So if you didn't get one of those at the members' meeting, then do go uh, get one before you leave. But the idea, basically, is to decide on them together uh, and to talk through them, discuss through them, uh, and then see what we come up with uh, at the end of that process. So that's why we're doing this, that's what we're doing. And uh, this morning, we're looking at the sovereignty of God. And this is how how we defined it for the moment in our draft uh, distinctive. It's going really slow this morning. Um, We believe in God's sovereignty in a way, uh, sorry, sovereignty in all things, but not in a way that negates human responsibility. That's what we've gone for for uh, for this one. So that's the uh, sovereignty of God. You'll find it on the inside of your notice sheets as well, printed so you can see. But I want to ask the first question really, what's at stake with this issue? Why are we even talking about this? Well, what's at stake with this? Well, I want to say that what's at stake of this is the glory of God. If we get it wrong about the glory, uh, the sovereignty of God, we risk taking away the glory from God. We sung some wonderful hymns this morning, haven't we, about God's greatness and majesty. And we risk losing that, don't we? If we get this one wrong, then we end up with a God that's less than the God of the Bible. We end up with a, a mini-God, if you like, who is powerless to save and impotent to help. We end up with a God who's just a bigger version of ourselves rather than the glorious God of the Bible. So that's one way we could get it wrong. Another way we could get it wrong is that we could come up with a sort of evil God, one who is the author of evil in the same way that he's author of good. We end up with a puppet master God who's controlling people, and we're just acting out parts rather than being human beings made in the image of God. So we could end up with quite a nasty God who regards us as no more than parts in a play or dolls in a dollhouse. And yet there's much confusion around this issue, isn't there? There's, uh, you hear terms battered about like Calvinist and Arminian. Uh, I thought for years that they were called Arminians because they originated from Armenia. Uh, that's an Armenian, um, <clears throat> just to clarify. Um, actually, in Holland they originated. Um, but Arminians tend to uh, deny the sovereignty of God over our salvation, and Calvinists tend to emphasise the sovereignty of God over our salvation. If you ever wonder what the difference is, that's basically it. And uh, I always remember it by a joke someone once told me, that uh, a man goes along to a church, a uh, Calvinist church, and uh, someone says to him, oh, well, who sent you? And the man said, oh, nobody sent me, I came here of my own free will. He says, oh, you want the Arminian church down the road? <laughs> so I said, oh, okay, right, so I went down the road, went to the Arminian church, and they said, why did you choose to come here? And he said, I didn't choose to come here. I was sent here. And he said, oh, you want the Calvinist church up the road? <laughs> That's basically the difference between the two. But is it really that simple? Well, there are stereotypes on both sides, aren't they? I've met some Arminians uh, who are more Calvinist than some of the self-professed Calvinists that I've met, and vice versa. So what do we actually mean uh, by the term the sovereignty of God? What do we mean by our, our statement? Well, the sovereignty of God is the idea that God is in control of everything. He is king, he is sovereign, and that includes our salvation. Let me give you a few verses just to show you what I mean. They're on the back of your uh, your sheet. So Psalm 115, which we saw earlier, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Or Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does 
in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Or Jesus himself, uh, in John 6, verse 44, this is what Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus there is saying no one can come to, to him, no one can come to God unless God the Father draws him. So that's what we mean by the sovereignty of God. And there are lots of jargony terms that you get for it. So in the general idea, it's sometimes called providence. When it's applied to salvation, we use terms like election and predestination. And that's the idea that God chooses people and decides their destinies before they are born. And some would like to avoid those terms, but actually they're, they're there in the Bible. So elect or election is there 18 times in the New Testament. Predestination is there five times. Chosen, used in that way. Uh, is there 17 times. So it's there. And I'd imagine actually this morning, lots of us won't take much convincing really about the sovereignty of God. But it's about clarifying what we mean. It's not the same as foreknowledge. It's not just that God knows all things. There's actually purpose to what he does. So think about the story of Joseph, uh, where his brothers sell him into slavery in Egypt. This is what Joseph says at the end of his life, Genesis 50 uh, First part of verse 20. As for you, his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Do you see there that it's not just God knew that this would happen, but God actually had intentions behind it happening. He had planned it. So they had intentions and their own motivations, but he did too behind those same events. More about this in a few minutes. But it poses some big questions to us, doesn't it? If this is true, then how is it that we're not just puppets? How can this fit with the fact that we seem to make choices? I mean, God calls us to make choices. Moses tells the people on behalf of God in Deuteronomy 30, 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live. God tells us to choose. So how does this fit with the sovereignty of of God. Well, that's what the sovereignty of God is. But we want to say as well that we have human responsibility. Human beings are responsible for their actions. That's what we want to affirm by saying that. God is judge and he will judge human beings for the choices that they make. Human beings do make choices. But the big question comes then, do we have free will? Well, that's not a phrase that the Bible uses in the same way that it uses election, predestination and chosen. But is there such a thing? Well, before we get to the Bible, let's just think about it just in in human terms. Let me ask you a really distracting question. What do you want for lunch? Uh, Perhaps you're thinking now, you know, roast beef, Yorkshire puddings, nice hot, thick gravy. Perhaps you weren't before, but perhaps you are now. (laughs) Are you making a free choice now about what you're having for lunch, or have I influenced you? It might be free choice, but then... Wouldn't you have it if you, but would you be thinking that if you lived in Japan? Might you be thinking, well, I'll, I'll have sushi for lunch. That would be the most delicious thing. Actually, does our culture influence what we want, what we will, what we desire? Would it be the same if we lived a thousand years ago? Would we be wanting roast beef and Yorkshire puddings? What about if your parents never made you it? What does our upbringing and circumstances do to determine our choices? That aside, what do you actually have at home when you go home this afternoon? Perhaps you'd love to have roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, but you don't have the means to to make it. You haven't got anything in and you you haven't got the money to buy it. 
To what extent are you free to choose your own lunch? Even if you do all those things, which Yorkshire puddings? Aunt Bessie's? Sainsbury's taste the difference? Or are you, you know, you must have them homemade? To what extent have you been influenced by adverts or packaging in what you want? So before we even get into the realm of the theological, the idea of total free will is questionable. Actually, even over just something simple like what you want for lunch. And just think how bigger it is when we think about terms of salvation. This is what a couple of clever men said, Augustus Top Lady said, A man's free will cannot cure him of even a toothache or a sore finger, and yet he madly thinks in its power to cure his soul. So our free will can't actually even sort our bodies, let alone our souls. Or George Whitfield, man is nothing. He has a free will to go to hell, but none to go to heaven till God works in him. And you dishonour God by denying election. You plainly make salvation depend not on God's free grace, but on man's free will. So we do, however, influence, though, make choices, don't we? Even though we're influenced, even though we're bound by our circumstances, we do make choices. That, that is true. We're not puppets. We have dignity as human beings. And we're held accountable by God for what we choose. And that means, importantly, that God is not responsible for evil. He's not the author of evil. He is sovereign over it. He permits it. But we are responsible for it. We do it, and we want to do it. That's what our natures want to do. So in jargony terms, this means that we're Calvinists, but we're not hyper-Calvinists. I'm I'm never quite sure about the label, how you can be more Calvin than Calvin. Hyper-Calvinist, it just doesn't make sense. Now that's just a label. Uh, I'm happy with it. I've sort of ditched myself. I have to go with it, really. I would name my firstborn son Calvin. Uh, So I'm sort of stuck. Whenever I meet people now, I'm sort of wearing my theological convictions on my sleeve uh, as soon as they ask me what my son is called. Um, But John Calvin, interestingly, probably wouldn't recognise us as Calvinists in the way that we use it, which is just, I think, to be careful with the term. Actually, the first time it was used was to do with John Calvin's view on communion. Because uh, actually, he agreed, the reformers all agreed about this sovereignty of God. It was over communion, over breaking of bread that they disagreed. So Calvinism was his view on uh, the Lord's Supper. Later on, it was used of his system of church government, which we call Presbyterianism. But it's used now in the strict sense, often, of our understanding of this issue. And like I say, it's quite ironic, really, that actually Luther and the other reformers, and Augustine, who lived a thousand years before him, would all take the same position and arguably the Apostle Paul, though some might disagree. Um, But this is what Calvin wrote in the issue, just to to make it clear this is what Calvin was teaching. This is quite a long quote, so I'll read it slowly. He said, We allow that man has choice, and that it is self-determined, so that if he does anything evil, it should be imputed to him and his own voluntary choosing. We do away with coercion and force, that's the idea of God forcing us to do things, Because this contradicts the nature of the will and cannot coexist with it. We deny that choice is free because through man's innate wickedness it is of necessity driven to what is evil and cannot seek anything but evil. And from this it is possible to deduce what a great difference there is between necessity and coercion. What he's saying there is that God doesn't force us to do things but by necessity we do things because that's the way we are. For we do not say that man is dragged unwillingly into sinning, but that because his will is corrupt, he is held captive under the yoke of sin, and therefore of necessity exercises his will in an evil way. 
For where there is slavery, there is necessity. But it makes a great difference whether the slavery is voluntary or coerced. So what he's saying there is we're slaves, and in that sense we don't have a complete freedom of choice. But it's a slavery that we put ourselves in, and it's a slavery that we are happy with. So in other words, Calvin believed that God is sovereign, and yet people are responsible because they do what they want to do. But we believe it not because Calvin did, but because that's what the Bible says. Uh, Spurgeon, again, who we mentioned earlier, he said, I, I have my own private opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless we preach what is nowadays called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. I do believe that we cannot preach the gospel if we do not preach Calvinism. Or again, uh, George Whitfield, uh, evangelist of the 18th century, he was writing to John Wesley who disagreed with him. He said, I cannot bear the thoughts of opposing you, but how can I avoid it if you go about, as your brother Charles once said, to drive John Calvin out of Bristol? Alas, I never read anything that Calvin wrote. My doctrines I had from Christ and the apostles. I was taught them of God, and as God was pleased to send me out first, to enlighten me first. So I think he still continues to do. So what he's saying there is that he was a Calvinist, but he got his Calvinism from the Bible, not from John Calvin. So the important question really for this morning is where is it in the Bible? And for this we're going to look at that passage that we uh, had earlier, read to us from Acts chapter 2. And as Steve helpfully mentioned, this is Peter's speech, the crowd at Pentecost. And I've chosen this passage, I mean there are other classic passages on the sovereignty of God. But here we see those two truths laid side by side. We see their sovereignty. So think about it. Who delivered Jesus up to be killed? I'll read you at 22 and 23 again. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So who delivered Jesus up to be killed? God did, in verse 23. He foreknew it, and he planned it. He had a definite plan. Now, planning is stronger than foreknowing, isn't it? It's actually purposeful in what is happening. And just for a second, think about how much planning went into Jesus dying on the cross. The handing over to the Romans, the betrayal of Judas... The abandoning of the disciples, the time in the tomb was all predicted before, the intactness of his bones, the money that Judas would take, the place where Jesus, uh, Judas, Judas would die, the place where Jesus would die, the soldiers dividing his clothes, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the birth of Mary, the adoption by Joseph, the birth of Joseph, the birth of the grandparents of Jesus, the marriage of his grandparents, the conception of their children, the preservation of their children to grow up and have other children. Right back to Noah, right back to Adam and Eve. That's an awful lot of planning has gone into this one event. And God has been driving history to do that. So where is free will in this? Did Judas have free will? Could the soldiers not have cast lots for the clothes? That seems a bit of a peripheral detail, doesn't it? Could the high priest have haggled with Judas for a better price? So it wasn't 30 pieces of silver, but 29 Could Mary have died as a child before she grew up? Could Noah, going back right to the beginning, have decided the flood was a bit of a joke and not built the boat? They're huge questions, aren't they? And yet, we see the sovereignty of God there, but we see human responsibility. 
Have a look at verses 36 to 38. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What we see there is that actually, even though God is sovereign, even though God has planned this, they are responsible for Jesus' death. That's why they're cut to the heart, isn't it? They realise what they've done. They've crucified the author of life. They know that they're guilty of murdering the Son of God. But didn't we just say that God had handed Jesus over? He'd been planning it before the beginning of time. And yet these men know that they're responsible. They are accountable for his death. So God's sovereignty does not exclude, excuse their sinfulness. Apparently there were a group uh, just after the Reformation. I, I can't remember the exact name that they were called, but I think they were called something like Cal- carnal Calvinists. They used to be found in the, the pubs of England and would go around drinking and doing all sorts of uh, awful things. And they argued that they were Calvinists. They believed that God had uh, controlled everything and therefore God had controlled the fact that they were in the pub, they were drinking, they were getting drunk. Uh, because God ordained it, he must want it. But that's not the way that the Bible teaches Calvinism, is it? That's not the way the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God. And in fact, people in the Bible even said things like this. So Romans 9, 19-21, this is uh, Paul writing. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is moulded, say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? You see there that the person who's, who's making this objection is trying to say, well, how can God blame me? God's in control. But yet God's sovereignty is not an excuse to sin. It doesn't get rid of the idea either that we call people to repent and put their trust in Jesus. In fact, we must call people to respond because... They are responsible for their actions. That's how Peter saw this as he preached. So there is human responsibility as well. So if you're here this morning and you're investigating Christianity, the sovereignty of God is not a get-out clause for your relationship with him. It doesn't matter in one sense that God is in control. You must repent, turn from your, your wrongdoings, and put your faith in Jesus. And if you genuinely want to, you will be able to. God will not turn you away. Because if you genuinely want to, then God is working in you. That's evidence that it's happening. But you are responsible for what you do. God will hold you accountable if you reject him. We are all responsible for what we do. Uh, There is human responsibility as well as divine sovereignty. So our final point this morning, how does this work out in our church? I want to say there are two ways that it works itself out primarily. We pray and we plead. Firstly, we pray. If we did not believe in the sovereignty of God, we wouldn't bother praying, would we? Uh, In a bit of a cheeky chapter at the beginning of uh, the the famous book, uh, uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.R. Packer, he claims that all Christians really believe in the sovereignty of God. And his evidence for it is that we, we pray, especially for the salvation of others. And then when people are, when you're saved, you give thanks to God for your salvation. 
You say, if we didn't believe that God was sovereign, we wouldn't pray for people to become Christians. That would make no sense, would it? We'd just speak to them. Uh, and we wouldn't give thanks to God for our salvation because we'd be thinking, well, it's something that I've come up with, something that I've done. But if we do believe it then, the converse of that is that we should be characterised by prayer. If we believe this, do we pray to God for these things? I mean, really pray. If you really believed God was in control, you would pray, wouldn't you? Think about a a classic village school with a headmaster of the school and you wanted to make uh, some changes to the school. Well, you speak to the headmaster, don't you, to make the changes in the school because he's the one in control. But there are also some village schools where uh, the headmaster's wife or husband uh, is really the one who calls the shots. And I wonder, who do the parents speak to then? They speak to the headmaster's wife or husband. Who you really believe is in control affects whether you ask them or not, or who you go to. How often do we not look to God in difficult situations? How often do we look to ourselves or others? Because deep down, we, we buy the lie that we're in control. Do we believe that God is in control of the eternal destinies of our friends and family and neighbours, of the inhabitants of Otley and Ilkley? Do we pray for them? I mean, really pray for them if we really believe that God is in control? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, but hang on. If God is sovereign, isn't that an argument not to pray? Hasn't God already made up his mind already? Isn't that the point of the sovereignty of God? Well, that's a bit of a tough one, isn't it? But yes, he has. But he's also made up his mind to work through prayer. God is sovereign over our prayers too. And amazingly, God gets his people to pray for what he wants. So if we're praying for this, it could be that because God is working in our hearts, because he wants this to happen. Think about the movements where people have prayed and prayed. They've often resulted in the salvation of many, many people. Now, you could write it off as coincidence... I think it's because in God's sovereignty, he's chosen to use our prayers, actually, to bring about his purposes. He gets us to pray, and then he he gets double the glory, because he saves people, and he does it in response to his children's prayers as well. This is the path that God has given us to follow. We're to pray, especially for the salvation of others. So we pray, but we also plead. We believe men are responsible, so we plead with them to turn to Christ. We don't just pray, do we? So remember the classic uh, incident with William Carey, uh, where he wanted to go and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And somebody said to him, young man, sit down. I don't know why I've got him with a broad Yorkshire accent. But <laughs> young, man, young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine. But that's not what we believe, is it? Now, of course, he could do. He could write it in the sky, couldn't he? Uh, all sorts of different ways. But again, God has chosen to use means to call people to faith and repentance. People do need to respond to the gospel. They're not just zapped with the gospel. They need to choose to repent. They are responsible for not choosing. The problem is that people don't choose to repent. It's like as a human race, we've run up a debt that we're unable to pay. And the fact that we're unable to pay it doesn't excuse us for running up the debt. It's like we've thrown away our passports and then complain that we can't get through customs when it's our fault for throwing away the means of entry. And that means someone needs to step in. Someone needs to pay our debt. Someone needs to give us a new passport. It can't be us. We don't have the money. We don't have the means. But a sovereign God does. 
He is able to change our hearts, to do what we cannot do. So Augustine, that guy lived uh, 15,000 years ago, 15,000? 1,500 years ago. <laughs> That'd be a long time, wouldn't it? Um, he said, oh Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. We need God to step in as we plead that they might turn to God. So believing in God's sovereignty does not paralyse our evangelism. It powers it. Given what we've done to ourselves as a human race, we have no hope but the sovereignty of God. Far from being a doctrine that makes evangelism unnecessary, it's a doctrine that makes evangelism possible. So we must hold both. Sovereignty without responsibility would lead to inaction. Responsibility without sovereignty would lead nowhere. But we must hold both. And that stops us from becoming the chosen frozen, if you like, where we all just sit down. Instead, we'll, we'll become the connected elected, uh, pleading with a needy world, involved in our community. So as a church, if we hold this, we'll be characterised by prayer and we'll be characterised by evangelism. So I want to ask you the question, are we? Is that what we're characterised by? Do we really believe this? And if we hold this as individuals, then it will show itself in the same way too. This will help clarify our prayer. This will help clarify our evangelism. So we're going to think about those two things as well, uh, about how we do our evangelism, how we do our prayer on the, the day away on Saturday. And we're going to be coming up with new ideas to invigorate ourselves to evangelism, to prayer, throwing away the civility of imitation and rising uh, to the manliness of originality. So bearing all that in mind, I think it's fitting that uh, as we close, we pray for God's help for the whole of this series, for our understanding in what's quite a complex uh, subject as well, and ask that God might work through us, uh, even as we speak to one another, and that he might get the glory uh, as we plan and strategize for the future. So let's speak to our, our sovereign God as we close. Father God, thank you that you are king. Father, thank you that you are sovereign over this world. Uh, but Father, we acknowledge that we are not in control. We acknowledge, <clears throat> Father, that we uh, in so many ways are, are, are inadequate. Father, that we uh, don't uh, live in the way that we should do. And we don't believe you uh, as king as we should do. So Father, we pray that you would really put these truths, not just into our minds, but into our hearts. Father, that the next time when we sing of you being great and glorious and holy and above all things, Father, that we might understand it better and love you more for it. So, Father, we pray that you give us wisdom, especially on Saturday as we gather together to think through these issues. Give us wisdom as we go through the rest of this series, Father, that we might not get the glory, but you might get the glory, Father, because you are sovereign, because you are such an amazing God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.